welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about operational audit. And to talk about that topic, I have Dr. Edna Murdoch as my guest. Dr. Murdoch has extensive experience in bank operations. During his first part of his career, he was exposed to the consulting world and became a business analyst, which ultimately led him to the internal audit profession. He did some insurance work primarily in Latin America and also worked in manufacturing, transportation, and pharma. In the second part of his career, he focused on training and was also a professor at Northeast University in Boston. He's currently the VP of Audit Content at AIC Learning and is the author of four internal audit books. Welcome, Dr. Murdoch. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here with you. Absolutely. So the first thing that comes to mind is operational audit. What's the definition of operational audit? Because it, it means different things for different internal auditors. So in my head, in my mind, operational audit is any process that you can review, that you can measure prior to hitting the financial statements. So it's kind of like auditing leading indicators versus the lagging indicators, which are the results on the financial statement. So my first question to you would be, would you agree with the definition? Would you add anything to that definition? And also the second part of the question is, what are some of the leading indicators that are part of your book, which is operational auditing, principles and techniques for a changing world, which is in its second edition, that auditors can use in uh, in the areas that they are reviewing in their respective companies? Yes, uh, great question. And uh, you are correct. There are a number of different definitions of operational auditing. And I think of it as uh, the review of anything within an organization, any kind of an activity, uh, program, or process. Uh, so when the auditors are reviewing it, they're looking in terms of how things get done, why they get done, where they get done, who does it. And they're generally pursuing primarily three main um, themes. They're looking for economy in the supply of the inputs. They're looking in terms of the efficiency in the use of those inputs and the effectiveness in terms of achieving the goals for that particular program process or activity. Uh, as relates to, to the indicators, there are a number of different ways we can look at it. And a lot of people will probably think very readily on economic indicators. We hear about those quite often. And to your point, and, and when you introduce the question, you're talking in terms of how operational dynamics reflect on the financial statements. And we can also draw a parallel there. We can think from the perspective of all the things that are captured in the financial statements and all the different things that we do with them. We calculate ratios, we look at different uh, variability and movement in terms of the figures, but those are all speaking to or, or summarizing or giving us a synopsis of what happened in operations. That's where it all starts. If we execute well, absent fraud or any kind of uh, anomaly in the preparation of financial statements, if we execute well, the financial statements should show that success. If we execute it poorly, then that that weakness, that failure, that that uh, lack of, uh, of accomplishment, lack of success should be reflected on the financial statements as well. So from that perspective, it all starts in operations. And then the financial statements are basically the summary of, of that activity. And then 
way of communicating the results of all of that to the world. So that's how I, I think of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's looking at the efficiency, the effectiveness, the economy. So and to me, that's where the fun is in internal audit. You know, personally, I, I enjoy doing uh, operational audits. So looking at your book, which, uh, you know, it's called Operational Auditing Principles and Techniques for a Changing World. I saw a lot of references to flow charting, which is something that in any audit, I think it's crucial, you know, depending on the, uh, in, uh, the area that you're reviewing. So can you talk a little bit about the use of flow charting and maybe some like real case examples of uh, how that helped you during a project in, in, you know, noting efficiencies or how things can be more effective? Um, just maybe some examples that uh, inter other internal auditors can take away from this conversation here. Sure. Uh, yes. So flowchart is an interesting tool because it really provides a great way of communicating what's happening in a, in a program or process and the different activities and steps that are performed in it. Uh, I found that a lot of auditors don't flowchart partly because it takes a long time to do. And in some cases, even their managers will discourage them from flowcharting because they say, well, you're going to spend so much time flowcharting. Uh, might as well just write a narrative. Um, I, I I, I see, I can understand that. However, uh, you may miss a few things. And also in an increasingly visual world, we're missing an opportunity to be able to convey what we understand about the process and also to show some of the weaknesses in the process. So I encourage auditors to learn how to flowchart and to do it in such a way that they also uh, develop additional skills and, and depth in terms of what they show. So I think of the flowchart as having multiple dimensions. One of them is in terms of the, the activities themselves. And that's what most people draw, the step-by-step -step process. That's why the, what I refer to as a one-dimensional flowchart. Very common um, and, and uh, a good starting point. The second type is what sometimes referred to as swimming lanes flowchart or approach, where now you not only show what happens, but also who does it. And that added dimension is very helpful because you're able to see how things are handed off from one party to the next. And I say party because it could be person, could be department and so on, but how it's handed off. And what I've learned is that in many instances, a lot of things break at that point, at the handoff point. Things don't make it across. They don't all make it. They get damaged, they get delayed, they're not communicated when they're handed off and then anomalies start, like delays, for example. The next part doesn't know it's ready for them to pick it up and move forward. So those kinds of things, so handoffs can highlight that. Another important thing is how many of these handoffs are there? If there are too many, sometimes what happens is this really slows down the process and you can sometimes think of it in terms of bureaucracy. Too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? We think of that as an anomaly, as a, an, an analogy. So we can think of it in terms of how many people are going to touch these transactions? Who are the people? And as others, we're always interested in also internal segregation of duties. So now by seeing who does what, we're able to see more clearly their segregation of duties issue. Now, the third way that I suggest people consider drawing flowcharts is when you start adding elements around cycle time. So you're now looking in terms of how long does it actually take for things to get done? So you're showing now, for example, from beginning to end, could be days, could be hours, however units you choose to use. But now you're showing the cycle time. You can also show it in terms of the individual activities. 
because some activities may be done very quickly. Some of them may take a long time. So by looking at this cycle time, you're able to understand also where delays may take place. So to your uh, question as well, in terms of examples and things that I've learned and, and found very valuable, this increased content in the flowcharts has helped me quite, uh, quite well. Being able to go back to the client and say, okay, based on our research and understanding of the process, this is what happens, this is who does it, and this is how long it takes. And then we can start to highlight some issues there. But also adding things like backflows, Right? We usually think about bottlenecks and delays and so on. All of that is fine. But then you have backflows where things don't go, let's say, from left to right. They don't follow the, the, the prescribed or the expected flow. They actually go backwards because, oh, they forgot to include X. Now they go back to another pers person or party within the organization or the process, or maybe all the way to the beginning, to the customer. That is definitely a problem. So showing those can also help a great deal in identifying areas for improvement. Yes, you know when a when the customer returns the product, what happens, right? <laughs> Going back yes. to uh, so, and when you're talking about you know the the risk is more like at the when the process is being transitioned from one group to another. What came mm -hmm. to mind was you know like a, a four by four hundred relay. It doesn't matter how fast one person runs, if they don't, you know, if the handoff is not done correctly, it, it won't work, right? Great. They're not going to win. <laughs> That's a so, great analogy. I like it. I like yeah. it very much. It's a great illustration of exactly the, the type of dynamics in a, an organization process. Yeah. So the the, the handoff piece is critical so that's that's very good i think that's a it's a good takeaway for anyone you know think about not the flow charting just as a you know one dimension process but think about like who is all involved and how's this information going from here to there so great great information now there's one other thing i like to to share also is is the concept of value added versus non-value added so when we're thinking about, and this, this also feeds into what I was describing earlier in terms of cycle time. So you think about the, the box, right? The, the time within the box when there's an activity, an action, right? They're calculating something, they're reconciling something, they're picking items, they're ship, whatever it is that they're doing is inside the box. Then you have the time between the boxes. So what happens is that sometimes you have a little bit of time doing something, right? They're doing a reconciliation or something like that. It may take them less than a half hour to do. And then they have to communicate to someone else and maybe they send an email. That's the time outside the box, right? So that's the handoff. So now you have a big delay in some cases where the actual work was a half hour that I did, a half hour that you did, but there were five hours between one action and the second. So the value added time Add yes. to one hour, half hour for me, half hour for you. Yes. And there's five hours of non-value added time in the middle. So by looking at that breakdown as well, sometimes you can find a lot of opportunity for improvement where you can basically shrink the amount of lag time that exists between one and the next action and maybe accelerate the process. Because sometimes people say, oh, it takes a week to process something. When you really look closely at every step along the way, it may be you know, one day work of, worth of work is four days of just things sitting around, but it's one day of work. So that's 20% active and 80% non-value added time, right? So again, you have to understand, you know, evenings and nighttime, you know, just factor those things. But within right. working hours, 
taking a look at that can be very, very illuminating as well. Yes, that's an excellent point. The the time outside the box. That's that's where you know things can can break down. So that's an yeah. excellent point. So using a you know a current example, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your book is Toyota. You actually have a whole chapter dedicated to Toyota. Uh, and looking at the news from last year in 2021, they became the top selling automaker here in the US. Uh, and a lot of it was attributed to how well they handle su the supply chain processes here mm -hmm. compared to their competitors. So my question to you is, you know, out of all those processes that you have uh, for Toyota uh, that you explain in your book, what are your favorite processes? And what can, you know, internal auditors from any industry use uh, to their advantage? Okay. Yes. So the, the, the uh, Toyota way, uh, there are 14 um, management principles that are within the Toyota way. And uh, to your point about the supply chain and the network of suppliers and so on, there's actually one of the principles that speak directly to it. I believe it's uh, principle 11. And it talks about respecting your extended network of partners and suppliers. The focus in the Toyota way is uh, challenging them and helping them improve. But of course, once you do that, you're also going to look in terms of how you are sourcing. And but again, the underlying thing is the quality of what they do. The Toyota way also includes elements around, for example, um, uh, using visual controls, look, use, looking at uh, just-in-time, eliminating rework. All of those things are also very important because as we look at what happens now with supply chain challenges, we find that in some cases we need to have good relationship with our vendors. We need to think in terms of how we're handling just-in-time and how much we have in terms of inventory stock available. Um, and, and what do we have in terms of... Um, um, a corrective action when we when the supplier that we have is not delivering what we need, right? So we have the dynamic around finding alternate suppliers. And it's easier in some industries than in others, some product lines than in others. But by and large, since we as auditors are in the risk business, I believe that this is a very interesting learning experience for everybody. To the extent possible, we should go back and take a look at how much dependency we have on certain providers because what happened now is something that actually I, as a practitioner and as an instructor, have been talking about for a very long time. And I remember many reviews where we will ask for all of the purchases and not just do the traditional, did it, you know, was it authorized and budgeted and, and did they use the merchandise, all of those compliance type things. But I remember distinctly so many instances where uh, they will basically say, okay, let's take a look at what they bought and who they bought it from. And look at the top 10, look at the top 20. And what percentage of the total do those 10 and those 20 represent? And then when we saw extreme concentrations, that was something we will talk with them about because we were always thinking in terms of, well, what happens if this particular vendor is unable to deliver? What do you do then? And that created some very interesting conversations. So even though we started doing this many years ago, we're seeing that in some cases that uh, that step, that procedure is still very relevant today. Now, I, I want to make sure for our listeners to also understand that, again, it's easier in some industries than in others. In some cases, there's nowhere else to go. But when we right. have sole provider or huge concentration, yes. Yes. we should probably 
Think about that, because this, if nothing else, is a great illustration of why diversification is important. Yes, that is a very good point, and it's something that, you know, comes up from time to time. So sourcing vendors, right? Yes. So let's not rely on this vendor too much, because if they go out of business, what's going to happen to us? You know, how, right. how is it going to affect our operations? So that's a, that's a very good point, uh, Dr. Murdoch. So tying you know your your book to you know what's currently going on in outside world here, here too so just had recently there was a report about inflation and how it's like you know eight percent or like it's just a 40-year record on inflation here in the u.s That's right yeah so which is a concern current concern for many 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 companies from your book what are some of the tools, some ideas that auditors can use if they are doing any type of control or any type of audit or review around anything that's like affected by the current environment related to inflation? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, the vendor terms and taking advantage of discounts. Because uh, interest rates have, even though inflation is going up, but interest rates have been low for many, many years. We're talking over 10 years in many cases. So the amount of money that you make on money that's sitting in terms of the interest that you earn on that money that's, that's not being used immediately, the interest is very low. But discounts can represent when you, when you calculate it out in terms of the annual rate, it can be substantial savings. So looking in terms of your ability to negotiate discounts and take advantage of those and pay as quickly as you can to take advantage of those. The return might be very much worth it. Right. Uh, another important thing is contract negotiations. So in some organizations, they have contracts that they never revisit. So looking in terms of what can you look at within those contracts to see if you can get any kind of concessions around pricing or better terms uh, in various things like those, that's a very useful thing to look at at that point as well. Since we're talking about operational auditing uh, as, a, as a focus point, uh, looking in terms of how waste also has a lot of cost built into it. So if you're inefficient in your operations and you're uneconomical in your purchases, what happens is there may be a lot of waste that's built into your process that people have learned to just kind of live with. That's kind of the metric they're accustomed to. But the world has changed and now you need to maybe go back and think about whether that percentage, whatever that number is, if that is still okay, or if we need to run an even tighter ship, like they will say. So looking in terms of, can we basically improve our quality so waste goes down and we don't have to buy, buy as much? There's also an implied benefit to doing that. So from an operational perspective, looking in terms of how well we are executing and the quality of our production activities. And um, I, I think that the, the last thing also to, to consider here is in terms of uh, making sure that the organization is not going to sacrifice quality for cost. Because right. one of the things that happens quite often when they're, they're making purchasing decisions or even contracting decisions is yeah. to look at the one that is cheapest and the cheap in terms of price. Right. Well, you should not only look at price when you're making a decision because you could buy something that's very inexpensive Yep. But the quality is also low, and that's going to create other problems. So make sure they're looking at in terms of value. So as auditors, we can also help to make sure that they're focusing on the right things and not allowing this conversation around rising prices to change the focus into just price. We need to always focus on value. 
Yeah, that's a very good point because to me, when I'm thinking about like maybe things that you can audit uh, when you think about inflation is reducing the cost, right? Like going mm-hmm. back to your vendors and trying to reduce the cost if you can or not increase as much. And then the other side is the pricing side. It's, you know, increasing the cost and passing on that cost to the consumer. But you brought up an excellent point, which is the part in the middle, which is waste. And, you know, if if it's not a product that is a high quality product, there's going to be some waste there. And so just think of like the ultimate value that's in the middle and how that that can help the organization, um, you know, be a better, uh, be more competitive in the market, I should say. Exactly, exactly. So awesome. Awesome. Uh, I really appreciate your time today on the podcast, Dr. Murdoch. It's been a pleasure. Uh, so just want to open up here to the listeners. If they want to learn about more about what you're doing, more about your books, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? I, I am very active in LinkedIn and that's a great place to find me. I post periodically so uh, it'll be great to have people join the network and, and uh, I like to share what I know. So uh, find me on LinkedIn and follow what I do. Uh, I think that uh, you'll probably find some great tips to improve their auditing work and, and their operational auditing in particular. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Murdoch. My pleasure. Thank you very much.